This is Poetry Off the Shelf. I'm Helena de Groot. Today, Empire State of Mind. The past few weeks I've been thinking a lot about my two least favorite topics, power and money. Specifically power and money in the arts. There's such a polite silence around them. On Twitter recently, a bunch of novelists decided they would talk and started sharing the numbers of their book advance. If you're interested, go check it out. It's a riveting read. But if you want to know the gist, well, you already do. Black writers, even big-name ones who won several prizes, often got advances that were a fraction of what their white peers got. It's clear who the silence protects. Many in the art world are sick of the silence and have started exposing some of the biggest, most well-respected institutions, such as the Guggenheim or SFMOMA, for being systemically racist. The Poetry Foundation is unfortunately no exception. On June 3rd, a week after George Floyd was killed by the police, the Foundation released a four-sentence statement saying that Black Lives Matter and that hopefully poetry could bring uplift in desperate times. Many poets have been critical of the Foundation for years for having a white president and a predominantly white board and staff, and despite being possibly the most well-funded literary organization around, not nearly investing enough in the communities of color it draws on for its programming. The tepid statement was, for many, the final straw. So a group of poets decided to write an open letter. Co-signed by hundreds of other people, the letter demanded real, long-overdue change. As long as these demands weren't met, the signees pledged not to work with or for the Poetry Foundation in any way. The response was swift. Within a week, the president and board chair resigned. Three weeks later, the editor of Poetry Magazine, Don Scher, stepped down. The foundation staff apologized for its silence and made commitments to address the deep-seated problems at the institution. In the meantime, I've been thinking about this podcast and what it can do to break this polite silence around money and the arts that only serves to protect the racist status quo. And I was thinking the best way is to get used to asking some really awkward questions. Because we all know that poetry doesn't exactly pay. So when relevant, I'll ask poets if they want to share what second or third job ascetic lifestyle, wealthy spouse, help from home, or powerful connections have made their life as poets possible. And I'll start today. But I have to admit, I'm starting easy, because even though I challenged a poet in today's episode on some of the ways she got her money, it's definitely made a whole lot less awkward by the fact that she's dead. Hope Merlise was born in Kent in 1887, when the British Empire was at its peak, covering almost one-fourth of the total landmass of the Earth. Thanks to that British Empire, her family was wealthy, and so she did what only the wealthiest women at the time could. She went to university, to Newnham College, and studied classics. It was at Newnham College, the women-only division of Cambridge, that Hope Merlise met her professor, mentor, and later lover and creative partner, Jane Harrison. Together with Harrison, she moved to Paris 
and the connections she made at Cambridge, as well as her family's fortune, would support her globe-trotting and writing for the rest of her life. Today, I'm going to focus on her only modernist poem. The poem is titled Paris and was written when Hope Merlise and Jane Harrison shared a life together in Paris in those heady days toward the end of the First World War. The Treaty of Versailles was being negotiated, drawing delegations from all over the world who would decide what territory Germany would have to give up for having lost, including its colonies. Simultaneously, the city had become a resort of last hope for poor people from all across France, whose livelihoods had disappeared because of the war. In the poem, Paris, the lyric persona takes you on a walk through this troubled, busy metropole, which comes at you with almost psychedelic intensity. Snippets from ads, sounds, smells, and moods all fuse in what Merlise would call an oral kaleidoscope. Today, Paris has been republished by Faber, which also produced an audio version read by Charlotte Rampling and Rambert Wilson, which I'll excerpt in today's episode. But it was first published in 1920 by the famed Bloomsbury Press, Leonard and Virginia Woolf's imprint. When the poem first came out, Virginia Woolf called it obscure, indecent, and brilliant. I talked to someone who's been laboring for years to uncover the obscurity, indecency, and brilliance of this poem, Paris, and its author, Hope Merlise the poet, biographer, and scholar Sandeep Parmar. What can you tell me about the sort of family that she was born into? So I like to think of Hope Merlis as a sort of improbable modernist in some ways because her, mm-hmm. her background is so establishment and conservative and um, bourgeois, I guess, to, to mm-hmm. put it one way. And of course, the modernists, particularly the high modernists, were saw themselves as being radicals and anti-bourgeois. Now, whether or not that was always true, of course, is a different question. Um, <laughs> but Merlis, you know, she wasn't one of these people, as far as we can tell, who kind of gravitated towards the radical thinkers. And yet her poem, Paris, is very much a radical modernist poem. Um, but yes, so Merlise's family, her father um, came from a line of industrialists. They owned a sugar plantation in South Africa. And her mother was a Scottish gentry, uh, sort of way back, uh, the Moncrief family. And Merlise was really interested in um, perhaps the fact that her mother had descended from Scottish kings and queens. And, um, and she had a very comfortable life. Right. Yes. And maybe for an American audience, I think it would be helpful to expand a little bit on that word plantation. What was it? A sugar? Can can you talk about what that was and what the context was in South Africa at the time? Yes. So um, clearly we're thinking about the time of of empire. And uh, the company was the Merlis Tongat Sugar Company. And it was, I think, at the time that the largest or the second largest sugar manufacturer. And so Merlis's family were of course, very much involved in benefiting from uh, indentured labor mm. and potentially slave labor. I, I think it's mostly indentured labor on their plantations. And I remember seeing records at some point about the sorts of, um, yeah, the sorts of conditions of workers. And uh, it's a dark aspect of um, Merlise's family story. And her relationship and her family's relationship to race is something that I think about quite a lot because of the South African context. Yeah, I don't think Merlise was particularly sensitive to um, to race and to her privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that would be a nice way of putting it. 
Yeah. She went back to South Africa later on in her mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. um, and she, you know, she would have, of course, had very um, conventional views at the time and quite scandalous views now about uh, the difference between whites and black people. Yes. Yeah. I want to pick that thread up again a little bit later. But I'd first like to, you know, start with Paris, not the poem, but the place mm -hmm. where she went on a trip when she's 26, right after university, and, and she wants to stay. And her family agrees on the condition that she gets a chaperone, um, <laughs> yeah. speaks volumes about the kind of family that she's from. Um, yeah. And so the person who agrees to, to cross the channel is Jane Harrison, her former teacher uh, at the university, but also 50 years, almost 50 years her senior, right? Uh, 37, I think. Oh, 37. Yeah. Okay, so Jane agrees to move to Paris and they live together, Hope and Jane, in Paris until Jane's death in 1928. Um, so what can you tell me about their relationship and about their life together? It's such a great story and I encourage anyone who's um, interested in the story to keep reading about it. But briefly, um, Merlis was a student of Harrison's from 1910 to 1913 at Newnham College. And I mean, Harrison had a kind of way of, um, she had a really commanding presence. She was mm. unusual and she was unusually interested, I think, in mentoring her students, her female students, because Unum College was an all girls and it still is an all girl, all women college um, at Cambridge. Um, but Merleys stood out to Harrison. Um, she was, of course, quite beautiful, but um, <laughs> She was also, uh, her mind was really of a, of a quality that Harrison thought was um, just beyond anything perhaps that she'd experienced with other students. So the two of them became very close. You can see this, it's observable over their letters to each other because they began sort of around the time when, you know, Merleys and Harrison are have a very much a student-teacher relationship. And it's sort of, the postcards are like, oh, you know, you should go and find this book or you should read this or what do you think of this? Mm. And then it gradually becomes much more intimate um, to the point where towards the end of the time when Merleys is a student, it's already turning into something else. Mm -hmm. So that relationship becomes a, a romantic relationship, effectively. Um, mm -hmm. And even though there's never a, a kind of declarative statement being made by either of them, they do live together their, the rest of Harrison's life. And there are people in Bloomsbury who do think that the two of them are in a sapphic relationship. Yes. So, um, and, but what's really wonderful is that this this deep friendship and this deep intellectual collaboration turns into uh, the kind of relationship where they not only live together and support each other in Paris and London later, um, but they work together on various projects. So they learn Russian together. They translate books from Russian into English. And, um, you know, Harrison's fingerprints are all over Merleys's books, um, all of them, mm -hmm. including Paris. Right. Yeah, I would like to unpack that a little bit more. But I first want to get a sense of their life together in Paris. I don't know really what I should imagine Paris looking like right after the First World War. Uh, were there many traces of, of the war uh, just having uh, raged or, or what, what was that like? Well, I mean, not so many as, as perhaps you would see in the Second World War, of course, um, when Paris was occupied. But one of the striking things around this time, of course, the peace conference is going on. So Paris becomes the space where the Treaty of Versailles is negotiated, um, which of course brings the war to an end, mm -hmm. effectively. So there's a kind of Paris is a buzz with international delegations from all over the world. 
Um, but there's mm-hmm. also, I think, a sense of widespread mourning. I think it's one out of four people um, in Paris at the time is somehow openly displaying or dressed in mourning. Mm-hmm. So there is a sort of sense of death being present and people reeling from the experience of the war. Um, also, I suppose there is a influx of people coming from rural areas of France as a result of of warfare happening. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a line in Paris, which is Paris is a huge homesick peasant. He carries a thousand villages in his heart. Mm-hmm. So you almost get the sense that, you know, the simultaneous influx of people coming into metropolis cities during modernism is also the result of war right. and hunger and famine and, and, you know, people's fields being literally dug up for yeah. warfare. Right. Yeah. And then at the same time, Hope and Jane lead something of a bohemian life, right, in Paris, uh, hanging out with famous artists like Gertrude Stein. Uh, I think at some point they get invited to view Cézanne's private collection. Um, so, so can you tell yeah. me a little bit about <laughs> that sort of rarefied yeah. circle that they were a part of? Well, it's really interesting because, I mean, this was something that I think was borne out in Merlise's letters home, particularly where she's sort of updating her mother on what they're doing. So, yeah, so they're staying in a hotel on the left bank, uh-huh. uh, very close to the Seine in 1919. But uh, Hope develops these relationships with people like Stein um, or Roger Fry, who was another Bloomsbury uh, figure, through connections that she has with other students at Newnham. So uh, she's actually meeting a lot of these people through Karen Stephen, um, Mm -hmm. who uh, is the wife, eventually, of Virginia Woolf's brother. So in a sense, um, Merlis herself doesn't come out of the social milieu to be able to have these kinds of bohemian connections in Paris. She relies very heavily on her friends. I see. Um, And I think that's interesting. Yeah, it is. It's interesting because we we almost get the sense that she's kind of, you know, sitting in a cafe surrounded by... (laughs) the geniuses of modernism and she's not you know (laughs) she's Mm -hmm. really not and I think that makes her poem all the more extraordinary um yes she goes to see Gertrude Stein and and her and Stein maintain a correspondence for years afterwards um and and it's very like bread and butter letters but Mm. um but she's not one of these she's not like perhaps um some of the other modernists in the sense that she's constantly plugged in to what's happening interesting sorry I could probably go on about this for ages but yeah Oh, but I love this, you know, because it, it does endear me to her or something, you know, that she comes from this really wealthy, aristocratic, powerful, you know, c- c- imperialist uh, background, but that she kind of <laughs> longs for the bohemian cachet, you know, <laughs> that she just wants to be cool like her friends. <laughs> <laughs> she, she, yeah, I think that's probably fair. Um, and then, of course, I guess the other important part of this is that Harrison is, you know, Harrison is almost 40 years older than her. Mm. And although Jane is... Um, Someone who herself is known to figures in Bloomsbury, of course. I mean, she's very well respected. But she, Harrison is not someone who I'm sure would want to be out at all hours of the night sitting in a cafe again, you know, or, or go yeah. or traipsing around Paris. Um, in fact, there, you get the sense in the letters that Harrison and her go on these very kind of toned down walks. Um, mm. Because, she, you know, Harrison is an older lady at this point. Um, and so this this poem, which it boldly strides across the city. Um, Yeah, I sort of wonder about the realities of that as well. Yes, because the poem is so thick with energy, you know, that energy that you feel when you're walking through a city where a lot is going on at the same time, you know, billboards and trains and people speaking different languages and, you know, there's all of that going on. And I wonder 
I mean, we know this, of course, this sort of trope of the flaneur walking through the city and noticing things. But how common was it for a woman to be doing that at the time, just kind of looking and walking around on her own? Yeah, well, <clears throat> not very common at the time at all. Um, there's a wonderful book by Lauren Elkin called Flaneuse. And uh, Flaneuse is all about this sort of idea of the, the female flaneur. Mm. Um, and it was slightly more unusual in the 19th century, late 19th century, in the time when the male flaneur was named um, and kind of... Uh, I suppose, experienced by people like Baudelaire and Apollinaire and all of the other kinds of mm -hmm. free-flowing free Frenchmen um, <laughs> and dandies. Whereas for women, uh, women who expose themselves in that way were often seen as being prostitutes or they were certainly women of ill repute of some kind. Mm. And, or they were women who were not middle-class women, certainly. They were women who were had to go to work and so had to be on the street. So you see this um, really interesting change in the 20th century where we move from the kind of slightly more penned-in model of, of intellectual debate with the salon, let's say, mm. which Merleys was really fascinated in the salon. Uh, and there are, of course, some great modernist salons run by women. Um, but we also get a more public sidewalk. Tell um, me about those modernist salons run by women. I didn't know about them. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I suppose Gertrude Stein's at-homes were a kind of salon. So, you know, uh, Picasso yeah. Pound would show up and break a chair or whatever. Right, right, right. Um, but then I think the one that um, Merleys was most probably interested in would have been Natalie Barney's salons mm -hmm. um, on the Rue Jacob in Saint-Germain-de-Pré, which were very well attended and very loose uh, <laughs> gatherings where lots of modernist poets would, would sort of rock up and, you know, they'd be kind of scantily clad lesbians, essentially, um, and poetry readings. Right. <laughs> so, so these were these were great, wonderful, but they had to be run by women who had the means. So, so Merlis is really, really fascinated by this divide between safe inside spaces where women can be, you know, have these glittering conversations with men in a safe environment, um, and then being out on the street and and potentially being kind of bereft or in danger. if we could get to just a few fragments from the poem and sort of dive into them a little more, starting with the beginning. Paris, mm -hmm. a poem. Those first lines, I want a hollow phrase. I want a hollow phrase. Nord-Sud, zigzag, Lyon noir, cacao blue Like, okay, what is a hollow phrase? And then what are those words underneath? And what's the connection with the hollow phrase, if any? <laughs> so the hollow phrase here is um, in Jane Harrison's sort of thinking is if kind of phrase or a sentence that represents a more complex set of ideas. So this idea of kind of I want, for example, can be kind of I lack. Um, but a hollow phrase can also be a hollow phrase. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so empty phrases or emptiness of language. And I guess it's really perfect to start there and then to lead into the next bits of text there because Nord Sud is the metro line which Merlis's lyric persona is about to step onto mm. to go 
Under the Sun. It was also the name of a literary magazine at the time. And then we have Zigzag, Lyon Noir, Cacao Blucher, which are all text uh, in the underground mm. and metro um, that are advertisements. And, and so they're products, essentially, things like tobacco and uh, was it a type of cigarette paper um, and also oh, shoe polish and drinking chocolate. So, um, so in a way, I guess you can see Cacao Blucher, you know, is a sort of, if that's a, the drinking chocolate, then you it's almost like itself a holophrase that that advertising or names or slogans represent desire in a kind of really crystallized way. And so mm. um, this kind of stand in place of a, a deep and, and much more mellifluous longing. Right. <laughs> so they are holophrases in themselves. Right. Okay. So uh, moving on, um, page four, there's this part that starts, uh, the Tuileries are in a trance. The Tuileries are in a trance because the painters have stared at them so long. Little boys in black overalls whose hands, sticky with play, are like the newly furled leaves of the horse chestnuts ride round and round on wooden horses till their heads turn. Pigeons perch on statues and are turned to stone. And then again, you know, uh, this this sort of shift to French, le départ pour le départ pour Citer. What is going on here? How? What would you like to say about that part? Well, it's interesting because I think my relationship with the beginning of the poem is coloured by my experience of trying to do the walk myself. Mm. Um, and I I take students uh, uh, from Liverpool University to Europe, and we went to Paris, and we stood outside where Murthy's stayed and we thought, okay, so this, you know, we'll go through the poem, we'll, we'll do the walk. And we only got about as far as Le, Le Départ because the students got so tired. Um, <laughs> and in that way, this is a real flannery poem because you can't do this walk and you can never do this walk through Paris. And you probably couldn't have done it at the time <laughs> because the city, the city right. is not a grid. It's not an actual plan. Mm. It merely gestures and suggests. And I think what it was striking for me following the poem is just realizing how much she would have had to ignore as she was walking as much as how much she would have to project onto or, or see. Interesting. Like what was the thing that you were imagining she left out or ignored? Well, one of the things you don't really get are other people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you get them occasionally. You get sort of yes. you get people liturgically crying their wares. Um, mm-hmm. And you get the man on the metro who sort of says, you know, vous sommes madame. Um, but you don't get a lot of interaction. And this is very much a man of the crowd. Again, um, that Flanner figure who is anonymous, who is observing, but not observed. And so that's really something that you notice because you can't really go through a city without coming across people. Yes. Yeah. I mean, this is a really, I, I'm so glad that you brought that up yourself because that was a, a sort of unease that I felt but couldn't name when reading the poem. Especially when we get to this part, it's on page 11. At this point, she's walking at Père Lachaise, the cemetery, the, the big uh, famous cemetery in Paris. And it starts with Mort au champ d'honneur. Champ d'honneur. Uh, so, um, you know, death in the field of honor. So I mm-hmm. suppose it's like a special burial ground for soldiers, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And then she sees these... Um, Little, little widows, widows moaning. moaning. <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't sound really <laughs> nice. I mean, does it? Like, it's not very respectful. <laughs> Le pauvre, pauvre grand. grand. You know, like the their dear husband uh, probably died on the battlefields. 
Yes. Exactly. Uh, yes. And so le pauvre exactly. grand, my poor big guy, whatever. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, um, I think the note that Julia Briggs has given us is just the poor man, which is quite is quite neutral. But yes. Um, yeah. You're quite right. I think this is it's a very strange, it's a very strange moment. And I, I suppose that, you know, the thing about Père Lachaise, as you say rightly, it's a, it's such a huge graveyard, and it's one that you know tourists mm. obviously go to for various reasons. Jim Morrison is there, Oscar Wilde is there, mm-hmm. but but what's really striking about the Père Lachaise graveyard is that you know a lot of the big wars are commemorated there. So knowing that uh, as a widow of someone who's died in the First World War, potentially that there are other soldiers or other kind of uh, combatants who have fallen who are being commemorated, and of course, sadly, we do have wars since or kind of disasters since there's a memorial for the I think believe for the Holocaust there as well and mm. I guess there's a kind of senselessness about the ubiquity of death and the inability to stop it and so even though we get this little widows moaning um, they're sort of little because their cries are their cries may be genuine they may be great but they are um, helpless oh, I see Um and so, yeah, you're right. It's not terribly empathetic, but <laughs> I think there's an interesting point to be made there, perhaps, about what death means to the poem. Mm, right. Yeah, and then, okay, so there's a last sentence there that maybe has a, a you know, that mournful note. Uh, never, never, never again. Will... Never again will the Marne flow between happy banks. And then, moving on immediately without breaking stride, it, it is, is pleasant, pleasant to sit, to on, sit the on the Grand Boulevards. They, they smell, smell of cloaque. Whatever this word is. Hot <laughs> India rubber, <laughs> poudre de riz, Algerian tobacco. I mean, what is going on? <laughs> yeah, I know. We, we come back to the, the products, actually. Um, mm. It's worth saying also the products of empire. Yes. Um, what is so that? Can I, you can you walk me through them? What they are? Because I, I don't really know actually. Yeah. I mean, I yes, cloaca. I believe is um, <laughs> how to put this nicely. What does we have? Cloaca is the the sewers. It's essentially um, shit. Oh um, right. <laughs> and then, <laughs> so yes, hot India rubber from car tires. Um, and uh, face powder, poudre de riz, so that the the, the uh, rice powder and um, Algerian tobacco. But again, these uh, these are all products that are coming from outside of France, outside of Paris, and and yeah. of course are relevant because going back to the beginning of the poem, where we also had commodities and products that are advertising from the expanse of the empire, the Treaty of Versailles was the space where. Punishment was meted out to those who lost the wars, the Germans, um, in the form of taking away their colonies. So the hmm. the empire, the map is redrawn of Europe, but also its um, colonies are, are divvied up amongst the victors. And of course, a strict regime of reparations are put in place, a kind of punishment for the Germans, which then, some would argue, leads to a terrible you know, financial recession and leads to... Uh, the war and the rise of fascism in the 1930s in the Second World War. Yeah. So, not of course that Merleys could have known, but there is an interesting mm-hmm. awareness of Paris as the center of empire and a kind of exotic space for the sounds and smells and you know images and things that are coming mm-hmm. from elsewhere and the power, I suppose, that that implies that this place has as also the space where colonies are being kind of uh, in people's lives, you know, delegations of people who are coming to make a claim for their homeland, yeah. uh, to make pleas for independence uh, amidst the, the winners, the victors. So there's a kind of 
um, there's a connection here between death, commodity, the empire, um, and and self determination that I think is coming together in a really fascinating way. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and and especially because it seems to sort of. Uh move on that very ambiguous edge of self-awareness and complete lack thereof, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think you're quite right. I don't think um, Merlis was necessarily incriminating herself as someone who had benefited monetarily from, you know, from empire. Yeah. You're right. She's kind of on the verge of awareness, but but not almost not quite. Yeah. Oh, are we all? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, But I want to ask you about that because, you know, um, w when I was preparing this interview, I, I read that your own family was affected by British imperialism as well. Um, your family were uh, partitioned refugees. So in 1947, when the British left, uh, you know, British India, they uh, they made one last little uh, um, uh, decision to divide the place up in uh, Pakistan and, and India. Um, and millions of people fled and I think so did your family and so for someone like you whose family's history is directly tied to you know the cruelties of British Empire um, what's it like then to to study a poet who is actually on the other side of that who who comes very much from uh, sort of the power brokers of empire and, and who doesn't seem um, aware enough for it to be redeeming? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's such a good question. And I, I really appreciate you asking that question, actually. Um, <laughs> it's something I get asked very often. Um, I think the assumption for uh, academics, particularly literature academics of color, is that if you are not white and you're in academia, you're probably writing about people of color, you know, so I, I get accused mm -hmm. of being a post-colonialist quite a lot. And I'm, I'm frankly not a post-colonialist at all. Mm. Um, <laughs> so it's, it is, it is, um, it's a good question. And I think I probably weirdly didn't think about it. The three modernist women that I write about um, and have done sort of archival research on are all white. Uh, so mm -hmm. Mina Loy, Hope Merleys and Nancy Cunard. Cunard was an anti-fascist, anti-racist campaigner. I'm quite comfortable with her. The other two, I think had a really complicated relationship to race. You're quite right. I think Merlis's relationship with empire. Um, I remember doing some research and finding the record of one of the indentured servants at the Merlis Tongat plantation, mm. and um, it described this Indian man who had um, been brought over from India, and it described you know sort of aspects of his body and the quality of his um, his physique uh, because he was being sold. I mean, he was essentially being sold into a kind of labor, and to sit there and to look at that is a really complicated and upsetting thing as someone who who knows what that the culture and the cultural context is as i do yeah but i suppose i'm also really keen and i think i think it's important for people who are like me to feel like we can speak with a certain kind of authority about culture that um cultural literature or art that isn't for us mm -hmm. whatever reason and To be able to be a, an Indian woman who comes from a long line of Indian women who didn't even graduate from school because um, mm. they weren't given that opportunity and to be able to talk about a poem that is so immersed and elusive and referring to so many different powerful um, cultural markers uh, of, of Western thought, 
is I think something that we all ought to be doing as well because it's mine too, I guess. Um, you know? Yes, right, exactly. Like you have as much claim on it as anyone or mm -hmm. more even, possibly. Possibly more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so now you are writing a biography about her. Um, and so I'm wondering... What is the question that keeps you engaged? Is there something that you yourself uh, really want to understand about her? I think for me, um, and again, this comes out of my thinking about other modernist women writers who tend to be overlooked or whose careers mm -hmm. tend to fade and have not really been brought to light until fairly recently. What I find really fascinating is, you know, Merleys is um, publishing in 1919. She finishes publishing mostly 1926. But then on both sides of her life, I sort of think, what led to that period of artistic productivity? And then what happens to this woman? Mm. Jane Harrison dies in 1928, and Merle stops publishing for, you know, another 30 years or something. Mm. Um, and so I'm, I'm fascinated just how, how a life of a writer is not just those seven years of productivity, but it's everything that you see, you are, and you become up to that point, and then also afterwards. So just trying to expand how we think about that output, I think is interesting for me from Merlis, because frankly, if you're going to write a literary biography of this woman, you would really be focused on quite a narrow, um, yeah. a narrow frame of a 91 year life. So mm -hmm. how do you account for all of that time between 1928 to you know 1978? that's 50 years where she's kind of almost doing not much, <laughs> but you know, yes, that's also, there's an intellectual life there. The life of the mind doesn't stop. Yeah. And how many liberties do you give yourself in recreating something that you have very little um, written evidence of? Well, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think at that point it becomes slightly more creative, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, we do have some journal uh, entries, you know, diaries for her. Mm. But then also, you know, she's in South Africa in the 1940s at a really uh, complex time. I mean, the start of apartheid, right? Let's just make that right. clear that this is the complicated period <laughs> sorry, we're talking yeah. about. <laughs> no, yes, you're right. We should say that. So yeah. um, but, you know, Nadine Gordimer at the time is there and she's kind of running the pen organization in South Africa. And then you've got Merlis, who, who probably isn't politically engaged. And I think it's a really interesting question. How how can you be in South Africa, have a black housekeeper as she does, and yeah. she's in Stellenbosch outside Cape Town, a really fancy place where mm. she's obviously not coming into contact with the black population. So yes, trying to understand wherever there are absences or gaps, just trying to understand how is this woman that we've come to know, how does she exist in this frame? What, what guesses can we make? Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to like put you on the spot, or whatever, but I just am I'm still so curious. And um, I mean, maybe you just have a very different temperament from me. I mean, you most probably have because I just got so angry already reading about her and reading <laughs> about, you know, like all this sort of luxury kitten who is free to roam and to take, you know, the fruits basically that her 
through her father's wealth, you know, has been taken from others, and that then she moves to South Africa at the time of uh, apartheid and indeed lives this life that seems sort of oblivious of the political context in where she lives. And so I wonder how you... Um, yeah, how you do that uh, emotionally, let, let's say. Um, how you look at that, how you ask questions that are inspired by who you are and by the times that we are living in. How do you um, navigate that emotionally in keeping her in, in mind? Again, it's such a good question. And <clears throat> and I think it's something that I've, uh, you know, but we say it's been in the back of my head because anybody who's writing a biography, anybody who's writing anything, but a biography is a really time consuming um, and very special kind of writing because you, you know, you're not just standing in someone else's shoes. You're sleeping in their bed. You know, you're wearing their clothes. You're eating their dinner. You know, it's like you're you're so you're so much becoming um, them. And, and the time that you spend being them, you sacrifice being yourself. Mm-hmm. And that's the weird thing is that it actually really does take away your life. And to sacrifice your life as a person of color to write about a white woman who is living a life of luxury in South Africa during apartheid, you're quite right. It's an odd choice. Um, And I think that people of color are already one way perhaps in which we survive is to to show and demonstrate empathy for white feeling and white emotion and white fragility. So it's, again, doubly complex, I think, um, for that. But... um, I couldn't do it if I didn't believe in her writing and didn't think that her writing was important, even though, you know, she's really not producing during this time. And the work that she does produce is is frankly quite conservative. She writes some very conservative rhyming lyric poems of a kind that are apolitical and is writing a biography of an antiquarian. Um, so, yes. so this, you know, there's a, she, 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 she kind of turns back into this eccentric bourgeois um, British person. Yeah. But um, it's fascinating that we have again. I have to go back to the radicalism of Paris. Mm-hmm. So how how is it possible that someone who is on on the one hand so predictable and conservative and so much part of the establishment, how could they possibly have generated this sort of originality in this material? Um, that's what keeps me going, I think, is to try to to grapple with, as you do, I think, as any biographer does, you grapple with not just the person in front of you, but the many people they have been. And many people she has been indeed. Hope Merlise was the author of the modernist poem Pears, recently republished by Faber in print and audio edition, read by Charlotte Rampling and Rambert Wilson, which we were able to excerpt courtesy of the estate of Hope Merlise. She also published two more volumes of poetry, three novels, most famously a fantasy novel titled Blood in the Mist, essays, a biography of an extravagant British antiquarian, and translations from Russian, a collection of fairy tales titled The Book of the Bear, and the autobiography of a schismatic 17th century Russian Orthodox priest titled A Life of Archpriest Avakum. Sandeep Parmar is a professor of English literature at the University of Liverpool, where she researches lesser-known modernist women writers, such as Mina Loy and Nancy Cunard, besides Hope Marlies. She's also a poet. Her collection, Idolan, won her the Ledbury Forty Prize for Best Second Collection. She's currently writing Hope Marlies' biography and editing her out-of-print novels. 
To find out more on both Hope Merlis and Sandeep Parmar, check out the Poetry Foundation website. The music in this episode is by Todd Sikafus. I'm Helena de Groot, and this was Poetry Off the Shelf. Thank you for listening. <laughs>